this morning, my title for you is Our First Look at the Second Law. Our First Look at the Second Law. As you know, my method of preaching is expositional, which means that I take a book and go through it chapter by chapter and line by line. In addition to that, I endeavor to be faithful to what Paul said he was faithful to do in the church of Ephesus, namely to preach the entire counsel of God, which means Paul did not shy away from the difficult texts or the texts that he didn't like over others. He teached the entire counsel of God, and therefore, what I endeavor to do is teach a New Testament book, and then when I'm done with a New Testament book, I preach an Old Testament book. Our last study comprised of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and therefore, after going through that study, now we are in the Old Testament, and we're going to study the book of Deuteronomy. Today, we're just getting our feet wet as we prepare for what will be a long and God willing, interesting study if I don't botch it up. Let me begin by quoting a few scholars and giving you a little bit of insight as to their opinion on this particular book we will be studying over the next upcoming months. J.A. Thompson writes this Deuteronomy is one of the greatest books in the Old Testament. Its influence on the domestic and personal religion of all ages has not been surpassed by any other book in the Bible. Jason DeRucci offers this, perhaps no other book colors the tapestry of biblical thought like Deuteronomy. Earl Calland gives his take with these words. The theological values of Deuteronomy can hardly be exaggerated. It stands as the wellspring of biblical historical revelation. In, its, uh, in it is a prime source of all Old Testament and New Testament theology. So I think you can gather from some of those quotes that I've introduced you to this morning where we're going to go with Deuteronomy. This isn't just another book in the Bible, although we hold all books in the Bible equal. There are some books that, it's hard to argue, have more influence than others. And Deuteronomy would certainly be at the top of the list. Now, I've said all of that to say this, church, we're in for an interesting and blessed study. I think that we're going to go through this study and not only learn a lot about God, how he related to his people then, and how he relates to his people now, but in particular, about what God expects of people of faith. And I think we're going to be surprised by some of, some of the plain language that we encounter in this sometimes overlooked Old Testament book. So... I'm going to begin with the first point. If you're ready, say amen. I want to introduce you to this morning our first point, which is, what is Deuteronomy? What is Deuteronomy? Well, simply speaking, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book of what is called, as a collection, the Torah, which means the law, or sometimes the Pentateuch which is a word that means five books. 
Throughout history, the book that we know as Deuteronomy has had a couple of different names. Historically, believe it or not, one of them is because of an accident, and that's where we've landed ourselves currently in modern times. Most of them have been taken from a misunderstood phrase in the 17th chapter. There's also a reference to the book of admonition in the book of Deuteronomy, the words in the book of Deuteronomy. And so it's been referenced by a few different names throughout history, but eventually it was settled at Deuteronomy, which is a Greek compound word, deutero, which means second, and nomos, which means law. So the book of Deuteronomy is a title for a book that literally means second law, or better yet, and follow me here, a second pronouncement of the law with some comments and explanations. Now, what I want you to zone in on here under the title is this. Moses is not presenting another law. This isn't an amendment or an addition to the law that he's already given. When we talk about Deuteronomy and the law excuse me, the name literally meaning second law, they don't mean second law as an addition, but second presentation of the law that already existed and that was already enacted. So this begs the question, why repeat the law? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons, and I want to share two of them with you. These are just two of my thoughts. One is negative and one is positive. Let's begin with the negative. First of all, I think that the law is shared again because we all need reminders, amen? We all need reminders because we tend to forget. We've got requirements and responsibilities. We've got chores. We've got cares. And between all of those requirements and responsibilities, between all those chores and cares, we have a tendency to forget about God. We have a tendency to forget about obedience, We have a tendency to allow things to distract us from the God who saved us and made covenant with us. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and indeed throughout the entire Old Testament, the covenant people of God are told to not forget what God had done for them. And that is especially his deliverance of them from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. Second, we all need reminders, not only because we all tend to forget, and we've already covered that point, but also because we tend to lose the weight of things over time. Our priorities shift. What used to be very important to us is suddenly not very important to us anymore. And if we say it's important to us, sometimes the priorities with which we live our lives reflect a different level of importance on that matter. The things that are largely meaningful, listen to me here, the things that are largely meaningful but happen at a slow pace tend to get ignored, while the things that are not as meaningful but happen with rapidity tend to get more of our attention. Life tends to overshadow the important things. And we allow that to happen because we allow the pressure, the speed, 
of life to change and shift our priorities. And I think that's one of the reasons Deuteronomy was written. I think one of the reasons that Deuteronomy was written is not only because we tend to forget you and I, but also because we tend to allow the weight of things to be misplaced. Church, I hope that the baseline of our learning in Deuteronomy would be this. Regardless of what we know about the present or the future, we know that God has been a faithful covenant God in the past. Let me say that again. Regardless of what we know about the future or how we experience God in the present, we know this. Our God has been a faithful covenant God in the past. And that might be the only thing that some of you walk away with in regards to Deuteronomy. And if that is where you are in your spiritual life, I'm here to tell you that's a lot. We go through Deuteronomy and you work your way through it and you're consistent and you're faithful to the studies. You take notes and you listen and you read it during the week and you walk away with, the only thing I can walk away with is that God is always faithful to his covenant. You have walked away with a lot. Because if you are struggling in your spiritual life, if you are walking, so to speak, like a zombie through your spiritual life, sometimes the only thing that will bring you vitality in life is the memory of this fact. God has always kept his covenant. And God will keep it again. The second point I want to share with you is this. Should we study the Old Testament? What is Deuteronomy, first and foremost? But secondly, should we study the Old Testament? Now, since we're going to study it, and since we're already the smartest church that I've ever known, I know you know the answer to this question. But the answer is, just in case there's anybody who's curious, yes, yes, we should study the Old Testament. But let's get down to the heart of the matter, and let me share with you three reasons why I think we should study the Old Testament. First, we should study the Old Testament because the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. We should study the Old Testament because the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. When Jesus preached, when Jesus taught, when Jesus ministered to people, the basis of his reasoning was the Word of God, which was, at his time, the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. That would be occurring soon, but it hadn't happened yet. So at Jesus' time, when the idea of the Bible was discussed, they were talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Here are some examples. They're going to come up on the screen. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he quoted Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 6.16 and Deuteronomy 6.13. That's the chronological order, even though the verses bounce around, that Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy to Satan when he was tempted. In Luke chapter 4, when Luke records the first public sermon that Jesus preaches from the synagogue, it says that the attendant at the synagogue handed Jesus a scroll that he asked for, and it was the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens up to Isaiah chapter 61. 
In a debate with the Pharisees, Jesus questions their knowledge of the writing of Moses. And and in particular, what he says to them is, if you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. Jesus constantly referred to the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24, verse 25, this is the last chapter and almost the last verse of the Gospel of Luke. And it says that there Jesus opened the hearts and minds of the disciples so that they could receive this teaching, which was that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms testified and prophesied of him as the Christ. Now, you might say, is that the complete Old Testament? And the answer to that question is yes. The Hebrew Old Testament and the English Old Testament are identical. They are not different. The only reason the Hebrew Old Testament is organized a little differently is because they don't break down certain books like 1st and 2nd Kings and they categorize certain books like 1st and 2nd Kings with the prophets. We have a separate group of books in the our Old Testament that we call history. But in those books there are great prophets. In 1 Kings, it's Elijah. In 2 Kings, it's Elisha. So as a result of important prophets being found in those historical books, the Hebrew Old Testament doesn't categorize those books in history. It categorizes those books in prophets. So when we talk about the Hebrew Old Testament or the English Old Testament, we are not talking about different Old Testaments. If you go to a synagogue or you visit a friend who is Jewish and you grab a Tanakh, off the Old Testament, and you read the book of Isaiah, it will read exactly like this. If you pull open the Psalms and you read the Psalms, it will read exactly like our Psalms. The only difference is in the Hebrew Old Bible and Hebrew Old Testament, the titles in the Psalms are considered inspired, and so they include that as a verse. So some of the verse numbers are a little bit off, but it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. Jesus used as his Bible what we call the Old Testament. That's the first reason why we should study the Old Testament. Secondly, the apostles often quoted the Old Testament to make their case in the New Testament. This is the second reason why we should be studying the Old Testament, because the apostles made their argument in the New Testament by quoting the Old Testament. Like Jesus, they viewed the Old Testament as God's inspired word. And therefore, they viewed it as authoritative and final. Before I continue with this point, let me just camp out here for just a moment and say this. You should be viewing the word of God as authoritative and final. As a person of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible should be for you the authoritative final word from God to you about life. All things should be vetted by you through the word of God. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. You have to have enough character and integrity as a Christian to say, I agree or disagree with you, but I don't agree or disagree with you for my own sake, but because of the word of God, which is my authority and the final word of all things for me. 
Well, it was that way for the apostles too. The apostles wrote as they were inspired by God, but they also wrote on the shoulders of men who went before them. This is a good principle to know. You might want to write this down. What's concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Let's say this again. What's concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. You might want to turn to this particular reference with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter is going to give us a good picture of what I'm talking about here. If you find yourself in 1 Peter chapter 1, begin with me at verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Say amen when you get there. This is what it says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in them uh, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we see this wonderful commentary by Peter that essentially says what I'm giving to you in a synthesized formula. What is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Peter is essentially saying, as the Spirit of Christ prophesied through these prophets, and they spoke about the person and timing of the Christ to come, when they were done prophesying, they had to kind of go back and study the prophecies themselves, because the prophecies did not give every single detail of the Christ to come. So even the prophets were interested to know further details of God's providence and plan to send the Christ. And so interesting is the plan of redemption as God works providentially through history that Peter says at the end of all of this, as the Old Testament unfolds into the New Testament, it's so amazing, this salvation that God has offered us through his prophesied Christ and by grace alone. It's so amazing that even the angels look at it with interest. Think about that, church. Peter's saying, even the angels of God look down from heaven and go, look at what God has done for humanity. Look at what God has done through Jesus. So you can see the view that Peter has between the Old and New Testaments here. What was incomplete and concealed in the Old is completed and revealed in the New. Third, and perhaps as an undergirding principle to all other principles and reasons why we should study the Old Testament, we should study the Old Testament because it's God's Word. Paul called it the inspired word of God. Jesus called it the word that cannot be broken. 
Sometimes we run into groups who emphasize Jesus' words over the rest of the New Testament because Jesus' words are in red and, and the rest of the New Testament's in black. Sometimes we run into other groups who emphasize the New Testament as a whole over the Old Testament. And on the flip side, we sometimes run into people who emphasize the Old Testament over the New Testament as if the New Testament hasn't been completed or finished. But this should not be the case with us. All the Bible is the Word of God. And this is certainly true of Deuteronomy. In his excellent commentary, Raymond Brown, the former principal of Spurgeon College in London, writes this, No Old Testament book has exerted a greater influence on the formation and development of both Jewish and Christian thought and practice than Deuteronomy. The early church was equally persuaded about the centrality of its teaching. It is among the four main Old Testament books, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah, most frequently referred to by New Testament writers. Its quotation are found in 17 of the New Testament's 27 books, and over 80 references from its pages are found within the whole New Testament literature. We should study the Old Testament. It was Jesus' Bible. The apostles used it as the inspired word of God. And in the end, it is the inspired word of God. The truth is, church, we believe that from Genesis to Revelation, whether the ink is black or the ink is red, the Bible is equally inspired by God so that whether we personally value the book of Psalms over Leviticus or whether we personally value the words of Jesus over John, the Bible is equally inspired and therefore equally belongs to us and deserves our undivided attention. So we should read it, we should learn it, and we should cherish it. In his providence, God has protected his words throughout history so that we could today in Miami in 2022 open this book and know that God was speaking to us. So we're committed. We're committed to Deuteronomy specifically, but in general, we're committed to the Old Testament as the word of God as well. Finally, and this is thirdly, what should we anticipate in Deuteronomy? What should we anticipate in Deuteronomy? What I want to do under this last point is set the gaze of our mind's eye on what we should expect from the lessons that we're going to learn in the 34 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament in general because we'll end up having to be doing some bouncing around every now and then. The truth is, there is deuteronomic vocabulary. You want to try that one, deuteronomic? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, try. Why don't you try? Deuteronomic. Yeah, this is language and vocabulary, formulas or terms that are found specifically in the book of Deuteronomy. So when we talk about deuteronomic 
vocabulary, we're talking about words that are found or find their meaning and weight in the book of Deuteronomy specifically. Church, I can't overemphasize this point. If we were to remove the book of Deuteronomy from the Bible, it would become completely out of alignment. It is incredibly important to the extent that it is one of four most quoted books in the New Testament and easily, by argument, Jesus' favorite book. The truth is, there is vocabulary and language that's found in these books, and we are, you and I, going to become more and more familiar with it to the extent that I think it's going to increase our faith and increase our knowledge of God. Why is it that God speaks a second law, as it were, as the book title suggests? Why is it that God tends to speak about the same things over and over again? Well, I think that God has a tendency to say the same thing over and over again because God likes to emphasize what's important. God likes us to be familiar with what is important. And I think also, finally, that God tends to say the same thing over and over again because truth doesn't change. God isn't redundant. It's just that he only speaks truth, and truth doesn't change. There are a number of core ideas. I know, I thought that was pretty fascinating, too, when I thought of it. There are a number of core ideas and themes that permeate the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, and I want to mention those to you now so that we are orientated toward what we should think about as we go through this book. First, covenant. Covenant. We'll be covering this idea over and over throughout this study, and it's to our benefit because the Bible is built on the ideas of God being a covenantal God. If you don't have a God of covenants, you're lost. If you don't have a God of covenants, you have no hope. If you don't have a God of covenants, you do not have a biblical God. From the beginning of time throughout history, God has related to his people through covenants. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. One would be Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, we see a very specific reference to a covenant, and I'm bringing this one to your attention because we're talking about the book of Deuteronomy, which is, by definition, the second law. Thank you very much for the loud one, whoever you were. The second law. So how is it that this relationship of God's people to God was established with this law? Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, the people of Israel say, and we will be obedient. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, we get the people of God saying to God, we are in agreement with this covenant. We will get into covenant with you. Now, something is important to note here. When it comes to covenants, God is always extending the covenant, but the covenant is not extended with negotiation. 
This is what we would call a suzerain vassal covenant, which basically means as the king, there is a covenant being offered to the people. But the people do not have given to them with the offer an opportunity to edit the covenant. When God offers a covenant, he says, here is the covenant. And we agree or we don't. And that's that. In this particular case, Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, we read very clearly and very explicitly that the people of God say, we will do the covenant and we will be obedient to the covenant. This is why, as we go through the entire Old Testament, we see the prophets reminding the people of the covenant they made with God. Another important feature in the book of Deuteronomy is the land. What would Israel be without the land? You cannot separate the land from Israel or Israel from the land without doing some sort of wrenching in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we see this emphasis of a relationship in the covenant between God's people and the land because for God, part of the covenant for his people was the land. Let me share a few verses with you. First is Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God's word says, Now the Lord said to Abram, he was not Abraham yet, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Did you get that? This is God speaking to Abram who is not Abraham yet. He's in the land of Ur. He's not in the land of Canaan. He's not even in proximity yet. God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, Abram, if you find it agreeable, I would like you to relocate. Is that what it says? Abram, Abram, it would mean so much to me as a God who loves you and, and, and would do anything for you because you're so important to me. If you could behave this way, Abram, and go to another place, I'll do, I'll do great things for you, Abram, if you'll just choose to do this, Abram. Will you choose, Abram? Is that what Genesis 12 one says? No, I mean, when I do this, obviously, I'm being a little facetious, but I'm doing it on purpose. When God makes a covenant and we read through the scriptures, we're not doing a whole lot. God shows himself to Abram, and he says, Abram. Abram says, what? And he says, leave. And Abram says, okay. That's it. It is not a sovereign God dealing with a sovereign humanity. It is not a sovereign God relinquishing his sovereignty because he's given something to us as human beings that, that, that hamstrings him and disables him from unfolding his providence and plan and history. Oh, God says in Isaiah chapter 48, I always do my plan. 
So when God reveals himself to Abram, he's not only revealing himself to Abram in a way that says, Abram, you're going to be the head of the covenant if it's okay with you. No, he reveals himself to Abram because he has a plan with Abram and Abram doesn't even know it yet. How do you know that, Joe? Look at what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house and go to the land. Go to the land that I'll show you. We know that this is an important feature to the covenant thought and the land that is connected to the covenant thought because when Moses goes to the people of Israel, they say, well, who sent you? And he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means the God of your forefathers who does not break his promise, he sent me. And you know where you're at? You're in Egypt under bondage and slavery. Yes, yeah, he's gonna take you back to the land and I'm gonna lead you. Oh, by the way, Moses didn't have a lot of option in this either. When the burning bush appeared to Moses, Moses didn't say, can we put it on a ballot? Aaron speaks better, which, you know, I don't know if he, I mean, there's theories. Did Moses have a stammer? Did he stutter? Or was he just saying, I'm just not confident speaking in front of people? Well, that's all, that's all theories. We don't know, but Moses did anything and everything that any individual like you or me would do to get out of the deal, and God said what? No, it's not your plan, it's my plan. And you're gonna do what I say because you're not God. I am So when we go through some of these thoughts, particularly in Deuteronomy, I think you're going to be, I think your thought is going to be revolutionized. Not that I don't beat this drum on a regular basis already, but I think as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to get hit upside the head regularly with these ideas where God is saying, it's my covenant, not yours. It's my land that I'm giving to you by by covenant, and it's my way, not your way. That's why there's conditions. The covenant comes with conditions. The land, as part of the covenant, is also part of this condition. Old Testament scholar writes this. Throughout his messages, Moses emphasized that Israel would enjoy life in the promised land only in a context of surrender dependence, and trust in Yahweh and his revelation. Obedience, blessing. Disobedience, curse. Brings us to the next point, God's sovereignty and election. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, from the beginning to the end, we see a teaching about God's sovereignty and election. And throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are reminded that their relationship with God has nothing to do with them, their strength, their ability, their number, but instead has everything to do with God's providence and sovereignty. And we're going to get to that particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which we might get in, I don't know, February. 
but eventually. But I bring that to your attention because we're going to see it replayed. We're going to see it replayed. And God willing, we will all submit to the idea that God is sovereign and we're responsible. In theology, we call this an antinomy. A-N-T-I-M-O-N-Y, antinomy. The idea being that these two things are simultaneously true and they seem contradictory, but they're not. These two things exist together simultaneously. You are responsible, but God is sovereign and he will have his way. But you are responsible. But God is sovereign and he will have his way. But you're responsible. But God is sovereign and he'll have his way. So depending on where you fall on either one of these issues, theologically determines more or less what camp you associate with. We aren't necessarily trying to aim at any particular camp. We're just going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to say, this is what it's saying. And every now and then, it's going to prick us. If you're reading the Bible constantly, and it never pricks you in the heart, you're not reading it right. Another focal point that we're going to encounter in the book of Deuteronomy is the Ten Commandments. Ever heard of them? Boy, we could use Ten Commandments right now. While the Ten Commandments are actually originally given in Exodus chapter 20, we see them repeated. Remember, Deuteronomy, second law, which basically we're saying second presentation of the law. We see see them restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're re-spoken. So the Ten Commandments are re-spoken because although there are hundreds and hundreds of laws in the Torah, The Ten Commandments are like a synthesis of those laws. And even further still, they can be distilled into two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. I think the Ten Commandments are going to be fun. Finally, and there are other focal points that we'll see, but in the interest of time, this will be our last one today. The law of retribution. The law of retribution. Now, this is when it gets difficult for us in the New Covenant. When we talk about the law of retribution, we're talking about something that is true in principle and was true in covenant between God and his people in the Old Testament. But it's a little different now. What we mean by the law of retribution is simply this. The people of God would be blessed if they obeyed, but they would be cursed if they disobeyed. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. The law of retribution is as clearly taught in the book of Deuteronomy as it is in different places in the Bible. But we have to be careful how heavily we carry this doctrine because this is principally an Old Testament doctrine. Andrew Hill, in his survey of the Old Testament, writes this, the blessing of the covenant would be forfeited if its conditions were not met. Though this does not mean that the covenant would become entirely null and void. So essentially what we're learning through Deuteronomy was this. If 80% of the country was good, I say good, let me, let me help you out here. This is, 
Let me be more specific. If 80% of Israel was godly, 100% of Israel was blessed. If 80% of Israel was ungodly, the whole country went to Assyria. The whole country went to Babylon because the old covenant dealt with the people as a whole. But even in the midst of God's disciplining his people via the law of retribution, if there was a small group of people who had faith in God and loved God and worshiped God in the midst of an unbelieving people, the Old Testament called them the remnant. That's what they're called. So in the Old Testament, we see people of God going through the motions and being active in the covenant, but not really loving God. And God says, I just stop sacrificing. I don't want it. Elijah says, I'm the only one. First Kings 18, I'm the only one. I'm all alone. And God says, there is a remnant I have kept for myself. 7,000. So we're going to learn a lot about the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. How the way of faith was played out in the Old Covenant versus how the way of faith is played out in the New Covenant. And while there are a lot of dissimilarities, there are a lot of similarities because same God. Now to end, I just want to share one more thought and that has to do with God himself. When we're reading through the Old Testament, we're going to see some distinctions. And in those distinctions, we're going to see the names of God hidden behind the distinctions, as it were. In the Hebrew Bible, we have three different presentations of God's name. These are not compound names like El Shaddai. These are, this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are just the common names. And the first is Adonai. Adonai means Lord. When you see the word Lord in the Old Testament with a capital L, but a lowercase O-R-D, that's the word Adonai. That is the word that refers to God as the boss. He's Lord in that sense. And then the second way that we see the name of God is Elohim. Elohim. That's a reference to God as the creator. That, that's God. That's not Lord, the word Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. This is the word Lord. And so when Hannah, for example, prays to God because there's Elkanah and Penina and Hannah. Penina has kids and Hannah doesn't. And Elkanah loves Hannah. Penina's just giving him kids. And, and, and he loves Hannah. Hannah says, please, God, give me a son. And God gives her a son. And she says, I will name him Samuel, El, from Elohim, God heard me. So that prefix, El, means God. Elohim is God. When we see the word God in the Old Testament, it is a reference to the Hebrew Elohim. The final one that I want to bring to your attention is Yahweh, or in the Anglicized, we say Jehovah. But these are the same. In the Hebrew, when you read an English translation, you'll see G, capital G, dash D. Or when you see the word Yahweh, you will not see Yahweh. You will see Hashem, which is the name. They don't say Yahweh because it's the sacred name. It's the personal name of God. We say Yahweh because God said, call me Yahweh. So we go, okay, we're going to call you Yahweh. And 
That is shown in the Old Testament as a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So when you're reading the Old Testament and it's Lord in all capitals, then you know that in the Hebrew, it was the word or name Yahweh. It wasn't Elohim, which is God, and it wasn't Adonai, which is translated with a capital L, but a lowercase O-R-D. Now, I share these things with you because they're going to be helpful points. As we go through the scriptures, you're going to go, why is this one in all capitals, but this one just has a capital L? Or why do sometimes they call him Lord, and sometimes they call him God? And some kind of, Because they refer to him just like we do. Lord, God, creator, savior. Same thing in the Hebrew, but these names carried different meanings. And I think it's going to be interesting to learn more about God by way of learning his names, El Shaddai, um, Jehovah Nisi, etc. It's going to be Jehovah Jireh. There's so many names of God, and we're going to come into contact with him as we go through, and we're going to learn what he's like by his names as well. So to close, let me say this. Like everything else, church, you're going to get out of this study what you put in. I will put in my work, and I will bring you, hopefully, a good sermon, a good lesson, and valuable teaching. But it will mean nothing if you don't take a note, and you fall asleep, and you don't pay attention. If your approach to this study is to make a vow to God, and to say to God, God, I'm making a vow that I'm going to take this study seriously, and you follow through with your vow, I believe God will honor that. But if you approach this study indifferently, then your results will be indifferent. My challenge to you over the next upcoming months will be the same challenge that I give to you on a regular basis. Listen, learn, grow, 